When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to a very special 100th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today we have a guest befitting this milestone, the legendary producer, director, writer, and actor, Warren Beatty, who has not granted many interviews over his decades in the business and had never done a podcast before we sat down at his home in Beverly Hills to record an extra in-depth conversation about his remarkable life and career. Beatty, who will turn 80 on March 30th, has been making movies for 55 years. His credits include, of course, Splendor in the Grass, Bonnie and Clyde, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, The Parallax View, Shampoo, Heaven Can Wait, Reds, Dick Tracy, Bugsy, Bullworth, and now Rules Don't Apply, the first film in which he's acted in 15 years and the first he's directed in 18 years, which will open AFI Fest on November 10th and then hit theaters on November 23rd. Considering the length of Beatty's career, he hasn't made many movies, but his batting average is as high as anyone's, and we go through his entire filmography. A fun fact, Beatty was Oscar-nominated as a producer, director, writer, and actor on both Heaven Can Wait and Reds, a quartet of noms only one other person ever has claimed for a single film, Orson Welles for Citizen Kane. Beatty also won the Best Director Oscar for Reds 35 years ago, and in 1999, he was awarded the Academy's highest honor for a producer, the Irving G. Thalberg Award. Over the course of our conversation, Beatty and I also discuss his journey from Virginia, where he and his sister Shirley, later to take on the last name McLean, were raised as Southern Baptists, to Hollywood in 1958. We talk about the remarkable impact of Bonnie and Clyde, how it came together, and how it changed the business and his career. We discuss his career-long tendency to take years on a movie, striving for perfection. We also delve into why he felt self-conscious about starring in Shampoo, how Muhammad Ali almost played the lead in Heaven Can Wait, and what his experience was with Ishtar, a movie that some people have labeled a bomb, but that he stands behind. We also dissect his fascination with what he calls America's sexual puritanism, and also with Howard Hughes, and how, decades ago, he first contemplated a film about those two things, feeling a deep personal connection to both of them. And, of course, we look towards the future, as he puts rules don't apply out into the world and approaches his ninth decade, I ask him, would he do TV? Might he act for another director? Or does he have another story that he's passionate to tell himself? So with great thanks to Warren Beatty and to all of you for your support over our first 100 episodes, let's go to that conversation. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mr. Beatty, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we always begin just with a form question. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Richmond, Virginia. I lived in Richmond till I was eight years old. We then moved to Arlington, Virginia, where we remained. And from there, I went for a year to Northwestern University. And then I, during the summer, went to New York and got all caught up in it, let me put it that yes. way, and, and did not go back to school. Most people know, but not everyone, that Charlie McLean is your sister. Were you two close growing up? We were very close, yeah, very close. Yeah. yeah. And she preceded you into this field. Was that an influence for why you wanted to do it, or how, how much did that rub off on you? I think it was, in retrospect, I, I would have to say it was a huge influence. Yeah. I probably did not want to admit it at the time, right. but she hit it early yeah. and very justifiably. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a big influence. You've said in other interviews that you and she had a very conservative upbringing, and I'll just read back a couple points for our listeners. Pretty religious family. You've said virgin until 20. There was an assumption that the first person you'd with would be the person you married. All this stuff, very traditional upbringing, right? How did that shape? First of all, it was 19 and a half. (laughs) We'll give you full credit. And I would say that the atmosphere of Southern Virginia was uh, conservative. My mother and father were both academics, Mm -hmm. and their parents were academics. The uh, religion that I got interested in, which was Baptist, Mm -hmm. occurred with me at around the age of 13. And so I wouldn't say that I was brought up in a very religious atmosphere. I think the atmosphere in Virginia at that time particularly, which is the same time as the movie that I'm uh, talking about, was throughout the country. It's really a movie about the what I would call the Uh, consequences, uh, some comical Mm -hmm. and also sometimes sad, of what I would have to call American sexual puritanism that existed very much in the 50s, but then began to break loose with the rise of feminism in the late 50s and early 60s, and what I guess is called today the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s, and the massive changes that were taking place. So what brought about your decision to leave Northwestern, where you, I believe, had gone on a athletic, or you had, you had been offered athletic scholarships, right? But you go to Northwestern and start pursuing a very different path. Well, I had been a high school football player, yes, and I was pretty good, and I got offered a lot of scholarships. But interestingly, Northwestern was one where I was not offered a scholarship. Um, 
Northwestern was a very good theater school, and the atmosphere there was, I think, very good for people who were interested in the theater. But mm -hmm. if you had asked me what I was going to do, I would probably have told you that I was going to go into law. Really, yeah. Had I done so, I would be speaking to you as a disgruntled loser in several <laughs> Virginia campaigns, probably. So after a year, though, you felt that you should be focused on other pursuits? Or how did you end up in New York? Well, I don't think that uh, these things always come down to conscious decisions. I believe much more in what I would call the blink. <laughs> that is, I feel that the unconscious mind is much more intelligent than the conscious mind that thinks it's so intelligent. <laughs> and so I think these decisions, on my part anyway, I don't remember them as being decisions. Right. They just seemed to happen. By the way, that still is the case. The case. <laughs> yeah. You go with your gut. Kind yeah, of, yeah. Yeah. By the way, I wouldn't say that if I were, if you were depending on me to make a decision and yeah. we were in some sort of business together. Right then uh, I would respect the giving the conscious mind yes. an opportunity to uh, display its ignorance. Sure. <laughs> so when you moved to New York, how were you initially paying the bills and what were the initial acting opportunities there? How did they come about? The first time I went to New York, I had worked for my mother's brother who was involved in building the third tube of the Lincoln Tunnel. Oh, wow. And I would call it a sort of a fake job. My parents were very contributive in the same way that they had paid for my tuition at Northwestern mm -hmm. University. Uh, they continued to uh, fund what I seemed to be doing. I would say the thing that I would emphasize the most is that I was. it was suggested to me that I go to Stella Adler, who was a great teacher of acting. It was she that convinced me that I was okay <laughs> to not go into law. <laughs> <laughs> and, and from her class, which other people have also just spoken so highly about, what were the most valuable takeaways when you now started working initially in live television, I think, in New York? She was the method, right? That was her... Well, you could call it the method. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, the me what was called the method yeah. in those days was split into several groups there was uh, there, there was at those times there Lee Strasberg mm -hmm. was at the uh, actor studio mm -hmm. and he was a great teacher mm -hmm. by the way also a wonderful actor Lee mm -hmm. Strasberg Sandy Meisner had the neighborhood playhouse and that was a very a very good school and then Stella Adler was the third but all of these people had worked in what was called the group theater in the 1930s that produced Kazan and, mm -hmm. and Harold Klurman, uh, Clifford Odets, so many wonderful actors and mm -hmm. uh, directors and writers came out of the group theater, which had been largely influenced by the teachings of Stanislavski and the Moscow Art Theater. Mm -hmm. So that was, a, I won't call it accidental, but a fortunate direction that I went into I don't know that it was so much my decision as it was Stella Adler's response to me that made that decision. Right. Uh, for me, yeah. Confidence there, yeah. One of the funny things that I read was that with some of the live TV that you were doing early on, I believe you'd ask somebody for feedback about your performance, and 
one of the things that was noted was that you, like some of the other people who had come through the, the same school, Brando, James Dean, people who had maybe a tendency to sort of mumble, were you even maybe not self-consciously emulating that at first? It was interesting. No, <laughs> I, I wasn't emulating them. Right. Some of them I hadn't even seen. Right. But what I would say is that the thing that hovered over the study of acting at that time was just don't be phony. I, I remember once I had a, I got a, a job doing a, a soap opera mm -hmm. for a couple of times, and that was live. That right. was not taped. Right. We, the tape hadn't been done yet. That came shortly thereafter, but there was a wonderful character actor. His name was Eddie Andrews, and he was, he was playing my father, and I had uh, asked for the keys to the car or something. And we took a break in rehearsal, and he said, come here, I want to talk to you, kid. And I, he had not studied <laughs> with these people from the group theater. Right, right. And he said, sit down, I want, I want to uh, give you some advice. I said, sure, what's that? He said, whenever a director asks you to do something, he says, do exactly what you did before, only do it louder. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the, that was the lesson yeah. there. <laughs> I also said faster wouldn't hurt. So, but in the beginnings of my career, that was, you know, in my study of acting, this is in the, in, you know, 57, mm -hmm. 58, this was pretty much applicable. And there were disagreements among these former teachers that emanated from the group theater. Sandy Meisner and Stella Adler sort of agreed on things. Lee Strasberg was someone who was more interested in what in those days was called effective memory. Mm -hmm. I don't know how deep you want to go in. No, this is great. I mean, it was kind of like this. Was this a sense memory sort of thing? Well, or? sense memory yeah. would be one thing, yeah. but effective memory, some people would say that would, would be good, that you, if for some reason that your dog had behaved in a way that was unruly, if you had to talk and use that as an effective memory to a person, you might find yourself talking to a person in the way you might talk to a dog or expecting the person to bark. And so people would make fun of, of effective memory. Right. I don't make fun of any of it. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe the approach that you took away from your study with Stella Adler? If it's not, if the method is too broad a term, what is the gist of what you ended up applying in your own career? This is how I would describe it. <laughs> That was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't, is you my wouldn't. point. Right, yeah. right. I think whatever just, happens, happens. Yeah. And I think you fall back on the study of these things when you need to, mm -hmm. and sometimes you don't need to, and right. sometimes you do need but to. But maybe you just come away with instincts about what to, what to do. You do what you do. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I believe December 1958, you're now in a play in Fort Lee, Apparently, at one of these early performances in the audience was Josh Logan, this director, who was impressed enough by you to start a series of events that resulted in you ending up in I, L.A. I don't think that was, I don't think that's true. Okay. I think the way that uh, Josh Logan noticed me, mm -hmm. well, here's how I got my first uh, job. One of my fellow students in Stella Adler's yeah. class had an audition arranged for him at CBS. And he asked me if I would do the scene with him. Mm -hmm. I said, sure. I had no idea that I wanted to audition for anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that I was ready to audition for anything. 
I went and did a scene from a play with him at CBS, and sadly, I got the job. <laughs> well, I didn't get that job. There was no job there, right, but, right. but the casting person at CBS, I think, thought I was good. And mm-hmm. then I began to work in little parts in live television. So that was all the stuff in New York? Well, it was mainly in mainly New York. Mainly in New York. In those days, there was a large agency called MCA. Mm-hmm. Lou Wasserman. And MCA thought that I was good Mm -hmm. and I was helped by agents Mm -hmm. at uh, MCA I was sent on auditions and I was sent to meet Josh Logan Kazan Mm -hmm. who both were the reigning directors of both film and theater in those days they did exceedingly well in both Mm -hmm. wasn't there though sort of a detour because obviously Kazan ended up being the director of your first movie but in the meantime between when you signed with MCA, and when you ended up doing Splendor in the Grass, there was a detour back to New York, right? I did other television things. I came to California Mm -hmm. uh, for a few weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then I was under contract to a movie studio, MGM. Mm -hmm. This was just about the time when the movie studios were no longer putting actors under contract. The movie studios don't have actors under contract now, but they... In the, in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, they had contract players. I uh, went under contract to uh, MGM. Who was running the place at the time? Was it Dory Sherry or was it still mayor? You no, know, it was after both of us, no. Benny Thaw. Okay, okay. And I was paid the enormous sum of $400 a week, <laughs> right? which I had never heard of. Right, right. And I did nothing for about six, six weeks. And at that time, William Inge, the great playwright, Mm -hmm. and Danny Mann, a very, very good director, were doing a play on Broadway, and they they asked if they could meet me, and I met them, and they said, we would like you to uh, do this play. I said, well, I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm under contract, I'm making movies, and they they stared at me for a a few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And after a few minutes, in a very kind voice, William Inge, who had written Come Back Little Sheba and Picnic and lots of good stuff, said in a very kind way, are you at all afraid that you've sold out to Hollywood? <laughs> He's trying to get your, and, get uh, your goat. At that moment, I decided to leave Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So I had to pay back the enormous sum of $2,400, which I did not have. I had spent it. Right. So I asked the agency, M- MCA, Lou Wasserman, yes. who was running MCA, and a lot of people felt that he was not only running Hollywood, but running the United States. Right. I had to ask for a meeting with him. <laughs> and you were now how old at this point, probably? I was 21 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And he looked at me, and he said, what do you want? And I said, I want to give MGM back the money that they paid me, <laughs> and I would like to borrow it. Right, And he said, well, do I look like a bank to you? And I (laughs) said, no. He said, then what do I look like to you? And I said, well, you look like a very brilliant agent who uh, seems to be running uh, the town and who seems to be a very honest man who will be minus one client if you don't do it. (laughs) And he he stared at me for about five seconds and then he... He doubled up laughing and said, okay, you got the money. 
and, and uh, that enabled you I to... felt that moment uh, helped me to be quite friendly with Lou for, uh, <laughs> know, after, uh, for the rest of our time. Yes. So that play that you went back to do in New York on Broadway, I believe you got a Tony nomination for, right? I'm told that I did. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it was not... Uh, successful commercially. I mean, it, it, it only ran for a few months. This is uh, A Loss of Roses. A Loss of Roses is the name of it. But you stood out to people, including, I think, Kazan, who you'd already met at that point, now came and saw you and was in that way sold on you for Splendor in the Grass? I would say interested. Interested, right. Uh, I don't know that I would say sold. Right. But interested. Right. Yeah. And so after that play, you were back with him and cast in Splendor in the Grass, and that must have seemed like a big deal. You hadn't had a... I don't think you'd done any film prior to that, and to have such a big... No, I had not done a movie, no. That's a big first role, right? Well, it was a huge stroke of luck. I'm giving you my fake modesty here, (laughs) that I would do the first picture with someone who was such a great, not only director, but uh, Kazan was also a great producer. Mm -hmm. He knew how to do things efficiently, and he knew how to be realistic in, mm-hmm. in the approach to, I would say, he had great pragmatism about him. And I think it's interesting that your first movie, like your most recent movie, kind of deals with the sexual puritanism that we're talking about here. That's essentially a movie about people who are desperate to get physical with one another, but can't, right? Well, I think it's a huge subject, yeah. uh, American sexual puritanism. Mm-hmm which often causes us to be the laughingstock of France or Scandinavia (laughs) or whatever. And I don't know that even yet we have fully understood from whence cometh this restriction and this level of guilt, Mm -hmm. whether we can attribute it to the Massachusetts Bay Colony or Jamestown, Virginia or whatever, but it is a factor. Mm -hmm. There are varying points of view on it that can be argued back and forth endlessly. Mm But the fact that it is different from some of our closest allies is undeniable. Absolutely. And so this movie was, I think, very well received. And I just wonder how you would describe its impact on your life. I think you would have been much more famous and known in the world than you were before. Just how much was your life different after Splendor in the Grass? Well, it was very different because the movie was a hit. Yeah. And I, uh, (laughs) you look back on things like this and you remember learning moments. Yeah. Some of them might tend to move toward the self-aggrandizing, but, but also <laughs> keeping one alert to the realities of... Uh, and when I think back, there's a moment I walked out of a hotel and there were a number of young women outside <laughs> of the hotel and seemed to be so impressed by the fact that this guy who was in this hit movie was walking out of the hotel and they were all standing, as I remember, behind a rope. Uh-huh. And I was walking to a limousine, and, and, and one, one very charming girl uh, was standing there, and, and she said, I, I can't believe it. You're, you're Warren Beatty. And I said, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, yes. And she, I just, I can't believe it. You're nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I thought, oh, uh-huh. Right. Yeah, this is a good learning moment. Right. And I remember getting into the, into the limousine and... <laughs> 
and and thinking, aha, this is very, very interesting. Right, it right. It doesn't right. all go in one direction. I, I think, though, yeah. that in fairness, she was heavily outnumbered by other women who I'm were. I'm not so sure. No. You, 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 you never know. You right. never know. Now, I guess for anyone who has a hit like that early on, the big question is, what do you do with that opportunity that now has arisen for, you know, what's your next move? And it seems like you were anxious not to be typecast or, or thrown into silly parts and understandably, but was it deliberate that your very next film, I think that same year, Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone, it was a complete departure from who you actually, anything resembling you, nationality, accent, everything. Was that a conscious, concerted move to show that you had range? What I would say uh, is that the opportunity of working with a great director like Kazan, mm-hmm. and by the way, a great writer like Inge, mm-hmm. and with a wonderful cast, etc., gave me a level of confidence that I could do this, mm-hmm. what he was doing. And I felt that he was encouraging in that way. And I had learned very strongly from him, never, never underestimate the importance of the actor. Acting, it's massive. And, and whenever I remember that, I also remember uh, something that Ronald Reagan said to me when he was in the White House, and he was not trying to be funny. Right. Uh, but he said this to me. He had invited me to bring Reds, yes. the movie that I made. It's not exactly Reagan politics. No. It's a three-and-a-half-hour <laughs> movie about a communist. Right, right, uh, right. He said to me, you know... Sometimes I think now in what we're doing that there's no business but show business. And he said, I sometimes wonder how anyone could be president today without being an actor. (laughs) Now, we had a joking relationship because I was not a conservative Republican by any measure. I was sort of opposite to that. Mm -hmm. We had a very friendly, very jocular uh, relationship. But I do think that I'm sort of haunted by what he had said, particularly what I, when I see what is happening today. Absolutely. But anyway, what happened with being lucky enough to have your first picture be a hit mm-hmm. and, and be pretty good in it mm-hmm. is that it gave me a sense of freedom mm-hmm. not to go and do one movie after another, which obviously, if you look at my <laughs> history, I, I've you don't do. made fewer movies than anybody. Right. <laughs> I think it sort of gave me the freedom to have a life. Yeah apart from that, or in addition to that. And I'll always be uh, uh, grateful for that. You can see evidence of that in the last 15, 16 years, to have four spectacular children and a fantastic wife. Yeah. And I have been able to sort of uh, luxuriate yeah, in, yeah. In, uh, in that. Well, to your point, in this period that we're talking about right after Splinter in the Grass, this is a quote from a 1965 profile of you in the New York Times, 1965, listen to what was written then, quote, he has also taken his own sweet time about making movies at all. And then it goes to quote you, you might say it's selectivity, but only up to a point. I have a distaste for work. Laziness? No, it's more complicated. There's a flaw in my structure that makes me not want to work. No, I don't mean risking overexposure. That's only in terms of success, close quote. Beatty drew on his cigar, quote, but I figure I might as well try for something different if I can get money for it. Fair enough. Close quote. So it, even early on, they were recognizing that you were taking yeah. your time between roles. Well, I found myself putting pictures together repeatedly. Yeah. And then not being in control of them. Yeah. 
And finally, I had a, an experience with a movie called What's New Pussycat? Yes. From a script that a man that I knew who was very uh, generous in, in cluing me into what uh, the movie business was all about, right. but he controlled the original script of this, and we had a difference of opinion. Right. And I had seen what I thought was a brilliant comedy writer who did a stand-up act at the Blue Angel. His name was Woody Allen. You might have heard of <laughs> yes. him. And I said, why don't we get this guy to do the rewrite on right. the script? And right. then that all uh, came into being. And then I wound up walking out of the movie because yeah. the producer was, didn't want... He wanted to do something other than I wanted to do. Right. And from that experience, I thought, oh, I get it. I have to control it. <laughs> And that's when I went ahead and did uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Yes, and that's exactly what I want to ask you about. But first, quick follow-up on, since you mentioned What's New Pussycat, can you share the title of that, what inspired that? It was my title. That was your title? Yes. And and it was but a, a kind of a fun quote of yours prior to that, right? Perhaps. Yeah. Maybe. I think yeah, it's a great yeah, yeah, line. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's very important that, that you keep all those words together. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Bonnie and Clyde, what was the, the first thing that made you even think about, you know, that there could be a film about Bonnie and Clyde? Was that you discovering the material? A friend of mine was encouraging to do make a, make a movie about Edith Piaf. Yes. And I suggested that she go to Paris. Uh, she was French. And I said, why don't you have a meeting with Truffaut? Because he's a, a great director and, and maybe he would be interested in this. We were all very interested in, in those days of people who had come out of the Cahiers de Cinema with, with Truffaut and Godard and René and all those people, and the British group of Schlesinger and, and, and uh, Lindsay Anderson and Carol Rice and Tony Richardson, and not to mention that all of those were sired out of the Italian neorealists, uh, uh, Rossellini, etc. But this was also happening in America as the studio system was sort of in decline. And uh, people would have movies and go to a studio for the financing, yeah. et cetera. And it's sometimes called the golden age yeah. of, uh, from the 60s to the 70s uh, up until the time of mass release mm -hmm, into, mm -hmm. you know, 800 or 1,000 theaters and then 5,000 theaters. <laughs> so, and everybody had to get the joke yeah. on Friday night. Right. It, you didn't have time to... <laughs> do as uh, David Lean, who once said to me, uh, talking about the great near art form of the 20th century, yes. you know, <laughs> movies, uh, had, uh, had Lawrence of Arabia right. had to go into two or 3,000 theaters on a Friday night, and there was an unknown person standing in the middle of the desert with a camel, right. seeing another unknown person riding right. across the desert. We, we don't know how no. well that would have done, but the movie <laughs> wouldn't have been able to cost what it cost, no. and it it is a great movie. Mm -hmm. But I uh, suggested to her that mm -hmm. she meet with Truffaut. I went with her to Paris to meet with Truffaut, and Truffaut didn't want to do a movie about Edith Piaf, but we had a nice dinner, and he suggested to me that I do this uh, movie about Bonnie and Clyde with these two writers, Bob Benton and David Newman, that Francois had uh, met with, and also Godard had met with, and I did. I went back to New York. I I called Bob, uh, said, can I read it? He sent it to me. Then I said, let's do it. And I could see that I could own the rights to control it. Because that was the key, right? That you were now not only going to be acting this, you're going to be a producer, you're going to be as much in control as somebody at that time essentially could be who was an actor, right? Yeah. If you were to call me 
a control freak, <laughs> I would take a pause and have a sip yeah, of right. coffee. <laughs> now, basically, though, you still had to get Jack Warner to greenlight the movie. Is that right? Well, uh, Bonnie and Clyde almost was made at Fox. It was almost made at United Artists. It was almost made at <laughs> Warner Brothers. It got turned down in a lot of places. And, and the general feeling was that you couldn't mix that kind of violence right. with that kind of comedy. And finally, uh, Jack Warner uh, went with it. Yeah. I guess you'd previously worked with Arthur Penn just two years earlier yes. with Mickey One. Is it true, though, that two-part, is it true or false? I, I read that 10 actresses turned down the part of Bonnie before Faye Dunaway. A lot of actresses turned down the part, yeah. Wow, they must. <laughs> there's a lot um, of regret for that. Because that. they thought, you can't mix comedy and violence like this. They were worried about that. Yeah. By the way, I was turned down by 10 directors also. Really? I was turned down by George Stevens, Willie Wyler, Sidney Pollack, Brian Hutton. <laughs> I, 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 I could oh just go on God. and on and on. Yeah, 10. Because they were saying that was their concern about the tone having that balance. Yeah, they thought it was a mistake. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, they were very nice about it. And uh, several of them, I learned an awful lot. I was very lucky when I came to Hollywood. Yeah. Because people like uh, George Stevens and Willie Wyler and Freddie Zinnemann and uh, Stanley Kramer, mm-hmm. these people, for some reason or another, they, they kind of took me in. Yeah. As did their counterparts as producers, mm-hmm. uh, David Selznick and Daryl Zanuck and on and on. Yeah. You know. Well, the part B is just, I read something that I I couldn't believe it's true. Did you once consider, instead of you playing the part of Clyde, that you were going to cast Bob Dylan? I didn't know Bob very well. When I first read the script, I thought he would be good. Mm -hmm. I also thought my sister would be good as uh, Bonnie. Yeah. And then this happens with a lot of things. It takes me some time (laughs) to think that I can be the right person to play a part. Right. You'll find very few people who will let enough time go by, as I do. (laughs) (laughs) And once you were on board and doing it, and how early in the process were you able to realize that you were a part of something that was special? I thought it from the very beginning. What I felt is what I always feel when I make a movie, is that if, if you have the right collaboration, and that includes the people who do the production design or the costumes or the cinematography, but very much so the actors. Right. And then if you have a director that you can collaborate with, have a a real dialectic with, Mm -hmm. have friendly arguments, and what I believe in is to have always more than two people in an argument Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that it does not become ad hominem. Right, right. Uh, That if you can do that... And we all have the same thing in mind, Mm -hmm. that surprising things can come out of that. One of the things that people who were not around at the time might not know is how divisive and interesting, you know, I just think it's fascinating how critics responded to this movie. And and please correct me if any of this is wrong, but because I'm going to ask you to react in a moment. But Bosley Crowther, New York Times, was vehemently against the movie and ended up essentially losing his job because he was so out of touch with the way I think another generation felt. Newsweek's Joe Morgenstern panned it and then re-reviewed it because he was kind of forced to reconsider. And then really Pauline Kael became Pauline Kael because of the fact that she did get Bonnie and Clyde early on. And so I just wonder what you made of this real, there were wars over this movie among the critics, what you made of that and also what Jack Warner 
how it how these affected Jack Warner's thoughts about how the movie should be distributed. Yeah, I, I think you're making me a little bit too much of a hero, but I appreciate it. The, the, <laughs> the um, for instance, Joe Morgenstern was not forced to reconsider. No, it. I didn't mean it that. His way. wife, it's he, I didn't know him. Mm-hmm. I was very surprised mm-hmm. when he he penned it, mm-hmm. and then I think a week later, not even two weeks, he went the other way, mm-hmm. and I called him up and I said, "What is there something I don't know?" <laughs> <laughs> and his wife had seen the picture. Was this Piper Laurie? Piper Laurie. Yeah. And she said, "You're wrong." And he went and he th- and and saw it and said, "Oh, she was right." <laughs> Bosley Crowther, I, I I think I don't know how anybody can be a movie critic for a long time. I would not be able to do that. <laughs> to do it right is so generous to to really try to figure uh, something out on other levels uh, that one is not used to. Uh, I think uh, Bonnie and Clyde is probably given a little bit too much credit for. Mr. Crowther, I never met him, by the way, being fired. I, something about the sound of that I don't like. Right. Even. And then the other one that you met. Oh, no, what you did not mention was mm-hmm. an interesting thing. Time magazine panned the hell out of it. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 I remember that, that it was even critical of the size of the dollar bills <laughs> that were used as a prop. And, you know, uh, the size of the dollar bills in 1931 were bigger than... And they they thought that was just a terrible pan. Right. Now, what was different then from now Mm -hmm. is time. And the time to look at something and the time to study it, the time to reconsider it. Mm -hmm. And that review was written in August. The Times. The middle of August. That's when the picture opened. And by December, Time magazine put the movie on its cover. (laughs) <laughs> and said that it had changed uh, movie making. Right. I don't know that that would be possible today. No, it would have been gone already, right? Uh, nor would it be possible today for a magazine like Time or Newsweek that is made out of this very old-fashioned thing called paper. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much currency yeah. it would have today. I think one of the most distinguishing things about the way we're living now is the brevity Yeah. Of any kind of controversy, yeah. positive, negative, happy, sad. But uh, at that time, a poor review in the New York Times could kill your movie. So how did you get Jack Warner, who I believe was swayed by that re- review probably, to not dump the movie? What had happened is this is around the time when Jack Warner was selling the company. Mm-hmm. But we were in few enough theaters that the audiences could understand more and... A few weeks after that opening, it opened in England, and England embraced the movie, as did France later, and that was a big influence on the domestic, and uh, the studio was very supportive, but things were possible in those days that are that would be very difficult now. Right. Just one other thing about the legacy of that movie, you guys with some of the inferences and not judgmental portrayals of criminals and some of the humor blending with the violence, as you referenced, and especially with the graphic depiction of the violence, you guys essentially, that or that film essentially killed the production code, right? I mean, it was the beginning of the end. You're giving it too much credit. No, things were in, in the process of change. We're talking about the 1960s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think we would take the credit for no. that. No, this we're talking about this 
blossoming of femi feminism yeah. and the freedom that it afford afforded the female and consequently the male. Yeah. And the interesting lack of inhibition about violence, which persists now. And that's a huge discussion. Relative to sex, where there's such... As yeah. opposed to sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In those days, it was, let us say, hypocritical. Right. By the way, it is, still is, but yeah. it was more so then. Sure. Yeah. Was it the fact that because this was your material and you'd guided this project and you had a substantial, I think, 40% cut in this movie, is that when it became a hit, that is what enabled you to, to really be more selective from a financial standpoint going forward. You did not have to work unless you felt you believed in something. I didn't have to work before. Even before. Okay. But it made a big difference on many levels, sure. not simply uh, money. But also, my great stroke of luck was to work with Kazan mm -hmm. and, to, and to do a movie that, that was a hit. And then even when I didn't have money, I, 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 knew, I, had, the, I had the conviction that I could uh, get it. So if it's all right with you, I, I will not go into as much depth on some of the others, but I have to ask you just a little bit about, you've not made a ton of movies, but the ones you've made are so memorable. If it's all right, we'll just touch a little bit on several of the others. To begin with, as the gambler who opens the bordello in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you were teaming up with Robert Altman. This is somebody who, as I understand it, lived for improvisation. You, as I understand it, are somebody who certainly is able to do that, but I think you in your own films like a more mapped out approach. How did you to reconcile that in a movie that in many ways was unusual, not least of all the fact that we don't even really know what it's about until the, after the first reel? And there was no one that I worked with that was more collaborative than Bob Altman. Mm -hmm. And he was fun. He was very talented and, and, and saw things and was very flexible as it went along. It, I would say, was the best manifestation of that that one could hope for. Mm -hmm. But there was structure. Mm -hmm. I don't think if Bob were alive today, he would disagree that, that I might have been a little more old-fashioned in structuring. But we got, got along very well on it. Right. And that's a good example of a movie that comes into its own years later because it wasn't necessarily appreciated as a great movie at the it, time. It was not in the rearview mirror, let yeah. me put it that way, yeah. in Marshall McLuhan language. <laughs> right. It was something that seemed to grow on people. Right. And I've made, you know, a few of those. Yeah. Uh, the Parallax View is something else that was also structured on set by a very collaborative director, Alan Pakula. Mm-hmm. And we had to collaborate and write a script because it was during a writer's strike. <laughs> and so we had to do it. Well, that's great. And that is the next one that I was going to ask you about. Here you've got a, your reporter investigating a senator's assassination. This was yeah. not long after the Kennedy assassination and the Warren Commission and all of that. How much was that an influence for you in, in wanting to tell that story? And you're obviously a, a politically interested person. You just worked for two years before that. I know with McGovern or for McGovern. So what were you wanting to say with that movie? Well, you're right. I, I had a very, and it's part of the life that I was talking about, that not just, uh, you know, wife and kids, right. but also I've had the satisfaction of being a political activist yeah. uh, with Jack Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and, and, and after. And so there are a lot of day-to-day -day 
instincts yeah. that uh, come into play when if you're trying to make a movie that works. Was there something though with that movie though that that because it was sort of in this era of numerous conspiracy theory movies, I guess you could start with Manchurian Candidate and go all the way through you guys and Three Days of the Condor and others. What were you hoping to communicate with that movie? Why do that movie? I, I think to try to uh, summarize why you do something like a movie yeah. is uh, a mistake. Yeah, it's uh, you should as politely as possible avoid doing that. <laughs> well, thank you for that polite avoidance. <laughs> with Shampoo, which was the next one the next year, 1975, obviously this kind of randy uh, hairdresser I think is a fair yes. description. Some people argue that the greatest time to be alive was after the advent of the pill, but before the emergence of AIDS. And that was when you were, I think, experiencing the social and probably personal sexual awakening or whatever in the world of your, you know, just that's what was going on in the world when shampoo came out, right? I think the word that you're searching for might be freedom. Freedom. And I believe that there is that subject of sex and politics mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that never seems to leave us. Right. And or you with Bullworth and on, onward. The same thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's good to be as thoughtful mm-hmm. about politics and sex mm-hmm. as possible. Because let us admit that we're living in the world's oldest democracy. Right, right. And we hope to sustain it. Sustain it, it right. Yeah. If people will accept their yeah. uh, results of elections and whatever. But yes. but in that case you have said, I mean, it's a, one of the great performances that, that you've given, and, you've, and you also, I think it was the first time you were credited as a writer as well, right, on a, on a movie? On Shampoo, yeah. yeah. I, I, I finally, after McCabe and Mrs. Miller and The Parallax View, I'm not being fair to myself, I should go ahead and take credit yeah. for participating in the writing, yeah. because Robert and I had worked on that script for a long time. Robert Town, yeah. Uh, Robert Town, yeah. I was just yesterday with Marcia Nassiter, who I think was who represented Robert at the time, and she remembers reading the your your guys' first versions of the That's right. script. And, yeah. But I, is it correct to say that when it came out, there were some people who responded, you've said it, I think the term you used was sort of, some people, you were you were concerned that they might see it as sort of self-aggrandizement. That's how they interpreted yeah, the movie. I, I had the feeling that people were thinking I was trying to be sexy. And the fact was that my basic feeling about the character was that he was exhausted. Right. And could hardly perform. Right. You know, I mean, that was, uh, right. you know. They put a whole new meaning on blow dryers, though, carrying yes. with you in your motorcycle. Also, yeah. by the way, uh, if you discuss shampoo, I, I, I wouldn't want a discussion to go by that did not include Hal Ashby, who was ah, yes. was so gifted. Yes. Well, it, that was also the second of three times, I believe, that you worked with Julie Christie? I did uh, shampoo with Julie. I did uh, Heaven Can Wait, wait with uh, Julie. And, and McCabe. And right. I did McCabe and Mrs. Miller. So the third, chronologically, was, was Heaven Can Wait. What does it mean that you and Buck Henry co-directed? How, do, how does one co-direct a movie? I like to kick things back and forth. Yeah. And when I got to a certain point on Heaven Can Wait, I found myself alone. And I wanted to kick it back and forth with somebody. So I invited Buck to come in. I knew he could not get credit. Uh, the Writers Guild would not get... I didn't want to make that big change, right. but I wanted to kick kick it back and forth. And Buck is a great person to bounce things back and forth with, so I said, why don't you come on and be a co-director? 
because you can you can have credit as a co-director, right. but he couldn't have had credit as, as a, a co-writer. As, as a co-writer, and I wanted to collaborate. Yeah, and he was very helpful. Yeah. yeah. Now here's another one where I just couldn't believe when I read that not only were you potentially not going to play the lead, who, as we will remember, is this angel in a sweatsuit and all of that, but you had in mind potentially Muhammad Ali. I had become very friendly with Muhammad Ali, yes. who was the most lovable character and very very oddly brilliant mm -hmm. he couldn't read very well mm -hmm. and he could remember every word that he had managed to read and everything that had been said to him or read to mm -hmm. him i read through scenes with him he, he he could have been a brilliant actor wow but he wouldn't quit fighting and i just couldn't i said ali if, if i i understand because he's making so much money right we went back and forth a lot, and I I couldn't get him to stop fighting, and so I said, if you don't if you don't stop fighting, then I'm going to change it to a football player right. and play it myself. <laughs> That's what happened. Which I did. Yeah. And I could go on with Muhammad Ali stories all night, wow. which I will refrain. <laughs> from. You're still the only person, I believe, aside from Orson Welles with Citizen Kane, to be nominated for one movie for acting, writing, directing, and producing a single movie for Heaven Can Wait. Do awards mean something to you? Are they was that exciting, or you know, when you're at a certain point, does that not get the juices flowing? Already? No, I think it's very encouraging, and and I think you did it again, right? With, what's not to like? About yeah, right. It. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were a couple of times, I think, with Reds and with Bugsy, where it was very close. If it, it must have been very close for Best Picture as well, right? Sure. Because both of those, I think, first one with. Chariots of Fire the second with Silence of the Lambs, many of the precursors were breaking for you guys, right? You know, I don't know. <laughs> not, a, not important, not especially important. But with Reds, as you mentioned, journalists, Russian Revolution, all of this, here's what I was anxious to know. Three and a half hour movie deals that deals with a lot of history and in which the main character dies at the end. This cannot have sounded very sexy on paper to people. Why were you so enthusiastic about doing it, and was it a challenge to get others on board about it? Well, I was so excited to get it done because I thought I could. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it, of course, was against the grain in so many ways, mm -hmm. because in those days, you couldn't change your ticket price. You still can't change your ticket price. And if you're three and a half hours, it, and it was the actually the last movie that was made with an intermission. Oh, wow. And and so you could play one time a night. So if you had the same group of people, that another you made half as much money. Right. But I've taken some pleasure in exercising my capacity, let's call, call right. it, to get something like that done. Yeah. I feel the same thing about Bullworth. Yeah. But I also felt it about Bonnie and Clyde and Shampoo, to which was a political movie also. Uh, and, and maybe a little too racy for some studios to take uh, the gamble with it. I, I guess you could say that uh, there's something enjoyable about getting something done that... Might not have happened without you. I yield to... Yeah, well, I will, I will say it, because you're, you're, <laughs> I, I don't want you to let humility get in the way there. I mean, the, who else could have made those movies? Per, well, especially Reds, which just seems like... Obviously, it ended up being well-received in commercially successful but on paper that shouldn't have happened i'm sorry it is correct right yes i mean yeah. okay so i have to briefly ask you about ishtar 
which was, I believe, inspired by the road movies, the, the Hope and Crosby road movies. You could say that you're talking about a very brilliant a woman in Elaine May. Yeah, you'd work closely together on Red. Oh, right? we had worked uh, on uh, uh, Heaven Can Wait. We had worked on Red. She, uh, uh, Elaine is someone I always go to to ask her to beat me up on, <laughs> you know, where she thinks I'm wrong and yeah. right and so on. And she's very, very honest and very brilliant. By the way, I will put a lot of money on the table betting that you have not seen Ishtar. I have. I have. I wouldn't ask You're you very, I'm Thank God I didn't put the money on the table. Ishtar, I, I don't want to go into too much detail yeah, yeah. because I don't want to damage someone who uh, was at that time uh, managing a movie studio. But there were reasons. There was an agenda there. And it was very sad that Ishtar was not treated with the respect that it deserves it's a it's an unusual movie and let me put it this way Dustin and I were acting we were not writing or directing mm -hmm. we had previews in three different cities the previews were the most successful previews that either Dustin or, and, or I had ever had and we've had some very yeah, successful yeah, yeah. previews and then the time came to have the press come and a very unfortunate thing happened that became public involving the head of the studio and it had a very negative effect on the the very day right of the screening of the movie so can i just interject one thing yeah. which was that i believe it's correct that the person who we're referring to about running the studio was also somebody who was behind and to some degree chariots of fire the year you guys went up against them with Reds. It's much more complicated more than, than that. that. Much more complicated than that. And and I just, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't want to... Sure. But is it, I know that you remain a fan of the movie. A lot of people actually, who now go and just give it a chance. Well, well if you go back and you look yeah. at the major film critics, a little bit surprising, right? They liked, because yeah. they liked it. But is it wrong to just say without belaboring it that there were issues during the making of the movie where it did go a bit over budget it did have multiple cuts being edited and uh, things no it no it, it was it was made by elaine in the way that elaine makes a movie mm -hmm. and it should have been respected it should have been honored but the studio personnel that green lighted the movie yeah. were no longer at the studio had been replaced by someone who wanted to change American filmmaking. Right, right. And it was it really didn't have a lot to do with the movie itself. And I know it, it sort of understandably graded on you when you would see in all the reviews, which are supposed to be about the movie itself, where they're referring to the budget or the, yeah. or the grosses or whatever. That was because that's not... In your, in your opinion, I think probably correct. It, it, it's not what we should be thinking of. And the movie is uh, unconventional mm -hmm. in many, many ways. It is not something that was in the rearview mirror. No. One day I would predict to you somebody will have a lot of fun looking at it again. Yeah. And examining the history yeah. of what had uh, taken place. Did the commotion around it, though, make you as a filmmaker going forward more 
guarded or in any way approach things differently going forward, knowing that there are sort of vultures? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> no, 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 it didn't change anything. It's uh, no. Okay. So with Dick Tracy, you were doing a comic book movie before it was fashionable. That was one that you were not always going to direct though, right? I, I think to not look into the possibility of having a compatible collaborator yeah. is sort of megalomaniacal. I think if we think we can have help, then guess what? We can have fun. Right, right. And uh, there were a number of directors that I thought, well, th this would be more fun right. if I had that kind of collaboration available. But then at a certain point, there is this other thing, which is, oh, I want to go do this. Yeah, get it, get it. And uh, Marty and I had talked about it. I had talked about it with uh, several other people. Mm -hmm. And finally I thought, well, okay, let's go make the movie. Right. And but not to say that I didn't have collaborators because sure, I, sure. I had wonderful collaborators, but there was no, uh, no one as famous as Marty right. or, you know. And the following year was one that I get the sense was maybe more than even some other movies, a passion project for you with, with Bugsy, where we're seeing, again, not unlike rules don't apply to a, to some extent, a outsider coming into Hollywood and trying to navigate the, the place. Where did that come from? Why did you want to tell that story? We played around with it for a long time. Like most every movie right. I've produced, I played around with it for a long time. That's Dick Tracy. Yeah. By the way, Ishtar. Right. All of them. I've acted in movies, you know, took, taken an acting job, and then yeah. I think, okay, it's not my fault. Let's, whatever you say. <laughs> so here was, was when you eventually, the, the way it came together, I guess you have Tillback script, and then eventually Barry Levinson, and that just the but pieces Jimmy meshed. wrote a script, and that went on for years, back and forth. Yeah. He's an extremely talented writer, yeah. a lot of fun. The character, yeah. Very collaborative. Yeah. Do you know him? Yeah, very well. He's a great oh, guy. Yeah, so character. Mean, he's, he's really fun. <laughs> yeah. And then we got involved with the Barry, mm -hmm. and then we, you know, what you do in a movie. You collaborate, you write, you rewrite. And uh, and then I met this very interesting woman. <laughs> yes. I believe her name is Annette. <laughs> <laughs> and she was playing, just for, for to remind people, she had come in, you'd asked her in to audition for this part of Virginia Hill, the actress who tumultuously dated Bugsy. And what motivated you to call her in for an audition? What had you seen her in previously? I had seen her in uh, Valmont, mm -hmm. and I had talked to Milos Forman at length about her. I'd never met her. I thought she was very, very good. In fact, I had a meeting scheduled mm -hmm. for Dick Tracy that she canceled. <laughs> And I was wondered why she canceled it. And then I was told that someone she's very close to was having surgery in uh, New York, and she thought she should be there. Wow. And I, uh, I thought, well, I, I like the sound of her. Yeah, yeah. And so then I uh, met her for Bugsy. Was it sort of an immediate spark there? Or did you guys learn just by kind of feeling it out over the course of that production that you liked each other? I, I, I wouldn't call it immediate. Mm -hmm. I would say maybe over two or three seconds. <laughs> Right. But you were not a couple until towards the end of the production? or was That it? is true. Right. The movie came out in 91, and then when were you married? What year? 92. 92, yes. so it was yeah, quick. Yeah, and again, then teamed up again with Love Affair two years later. I want to say, yes. speaking professionally, yeah. that there is no better actress alive, in my opinion, than the woman 
about whom we have just spoken. Yes, and is supported by 20th century women, which we just saw in New York. And she's spectacular. Yes, absolutely. Spectacular. That may, Oscar nomination number five on route. So, Bullworth, though, you mentioned was a, was a tough one to get off the ground, not only because, as seems to occasionally happen, you put a lot of time into it, but also a rapping senator who hires a person to kill him is not formulaic in any way. So can you describe the birthing of that movie and, and how it came together? How do I describe it and avoid going too much into detail about it? I would say that there were circumstances that came to me that I, where I saw that I had the freedom to do this movie because the studio had backed out of doing Dick Tracy, which, by the way, became very profitable. And the studio, in the settlement of that, made room for another movie as long as I lived up to certain requirements, which were, I would say, minimal. Right. And I was very uh, grateful to them for following through. It really was not a tough thing to do. That mid-range budget, I think that was $30 that kind of a budget movie almost doesn't exist anymore. Now it's either you're a huge budget movie or an indie. That's what we have to really be careful of, is that we're becoming either $2 million or $200 million. Right. And uh, this is all a function of uh, how many theaters? 3,000? Uh, quick. What time is it? Right. 10.30? Right. We know what happened. It's disconcerting. It's, it's unfortunate. Yeah. For the, uh, what I repeat, David Lean said. Yes, yes. The near art form of the... 20th century. Right. But we're in the 21st century. Yes, now, now so, yes, uh, it'll be amended. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, Bullworth was 18 years ago. Then you acted in Town and Country, that was 15 years ago. And then since then, not to say that you haven't been busy, as you mentioned, with domestic life, but we have not seen you again directing or starring in a movie until Rules Don't Apply Now. And I just wonder what initially inspired that idea and why did this one take. I would think it's correct to say longer than even any other one before it. Well, I would say that Bullworth, for instance, Mm -hmm. through all of the years that I had spent in political activism, Mm -hmm. I had finally gotten to the point where I thought, if I'm going to do a contemporary politician, I don't know how to do it without it being ridiculous. (laughs) I will accept your approval that I have just said that about Developments. Uh, so, so. <laughs> no, well, no, I don't mean to be right. too oblique here. No, it was but, great. But, but I, I felt that something needed to be said, and that someone had to have a nervous breakdown to be able to say it. Right. You were, you were also making a statement. Is, is that that's the connection in the sense, right? With Bullworth, you're making a statement about sex in politics. And, Bullworth. You're right with Bullworth. Uh, no, I, I would not uh, say that as much as I would say truth, truth in politics. And also, just as long as we're back on Bullworth for a second, I have to... Your rapping skills were very impressive, and I understand you honed them with some professionals. Oh, I, I got uh, friendly with Dre and Snoop and, uh, <laughs> and uh, Tupac. Yeah, they were very helpful. I didn't intend to look like a good rapper. No, but... I intended to look like a very bad rapper, <laughs> but a person who wanted to do that. Right. And I think that there were a lot of truths in the raps and mm-hmm. the things that happened, which in in the last years have become more evident. Absolutely. Consequently, there is more access right. 
to the movie on the part of an audience. Right. But I don't mind being ahead of the game sure. uh, as long as... Well, I mean, there's more money in not being ahead of the game. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So with Rules Don't Apply, I heard that the initial spark of interest in Howard Hughes was way back when I, Shirley MacLaine, your sister, said, quote, Howard Hughes was the first person I met when I came to Hollywood. Hughes had this theatrical mysteriousness that Warren always found intriguing, close quote. When did you first sort of learn who Howard Hughes was? I did not know that that was the first person that Shirley or somebody told me that the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you used the word that she word that I, I think you said that she said yes. that I found him intriguing. Yes. I would be more inclined to say amusing mm-hmm. and intriguing. How did he cross your radar for the first time? In the 1960s. And, and I always thought there was, there was room there for a fun movie. Yeah. First of all, I never knew Howard Hughes. I never met him. It would be hard for me to make a movie about someone I, I knew well. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't think it would be very nice. <laughs> I wouldn't write a biography of you. Right. you know? I wouldn't, <laughs> that wouldn't be nice. Right. What I would say is that I sometimes feel I, I knew everybody who knew Howard Hughes. Yeah. Uh, no one really spoke ill of him. He was well-liked, but it was very difficult to be associated with him because he could do it his way no matter what. I think inherited wealth has problems and great assets, mm-hmm. and I, I think that it enabled him to do things in the seeking of a, of a mysterious identity that he intended to produce a certain amount of intrigue. And you personally encountered that yourself right in the 70s where you did not meet him but very nearly did right i was intrigued by him in the 60s mm-hmm. something funny happened with me at the beverly hills yeah, hotel in which to. i felt the tabloids were following me and i complained to the hotel right and they said that's not the tabloids and i said well you know i said that well you're in the next those people work for mr hughes and i said right, wait a minute are you telling me i'm in the next suite from Howard Hughes, and they said, well, we, we don't know. And I said, then what are you talking about? Well, he has seven suites. <laughs> I said, seven suites? And I said, yeah, but confidentially, please, he also has five bungalows. <laughs> and I thought, well, now, he has seven suites right. and five bungalows. He's up to something. Yeah, right. And this has got to be kind of funny. So that fueled your imagination over the year, because this is certainly referenced in Rules Don't Apply yes. scenes there. I think that gets into the ridiculous uh, situations that Hughes, have, I had always heard, have been involved with. I never knew him. I never knew Clyde Barrow. I never knew Bugsy Siegel. Right. I never knew John Reed. Mm-hmm. I do believe that when you make a movie about, uh, and, and a central character is um, used, then it's going to be a fiction. Mm-hmm. Some time ago, I almost put three titles uh, on the at the beginning of the movie. One was a quote of uh, Henry Ford's, which is, history is bunk. Another quote that I thought of almost used was Winston Churchill, who said, history will be very kind to me because I intend to write it. <laughs> and then the, the third quote was uh, of Napoleon's, who said, uh, history is a set of lies agreed upon. <laughs> and and I, I felt, let's do the movie about the little I know about Howard Hughes mm-hmm. and see where it takes me. And let's say it helps me to tell a story that I do know somewhat about as Howard Hughes, but also what it was like to come to Hollywood in 1958. So it's very important 
to realize that th this movie is not a biopic of Howard Hughes. It's right. a story more of two young people, very religious, who come to Hollywood in 1958 at the threshold of a revolution in feminism and sexual mores, mm -hmm. who both get involved by working for Howard Hughes. And uh, so that's what I uh, try to do in, uh, in preparing for somebody to, to see the movie. No, uh, it's important to yeah. say, and it's interesting. And I think just to hammer down on one of the points you were making, Lily Collins' character, like you, Southern Baptist who arrives in Hollywood in 1958, waited around for a while to be even assigned a film, felt somewhat... And, and, and to meet him. And, and to, to meet, meet Howard Hughes. Never met him in But I'm just saying, even parallels with yourself, it's interesting, where you waited around for an assignment here as well, didn't you, for a little bit before... It was going. six weeks, yes. Right. So you're sitting around. <laughs> yeah. And then also, initially when you got out here, were there lingering effects of the sexual puritanism that you talked about where you're out here and not immediately necessarily comfortable with the Hollywood culture or, or at least at home in it? I would say that comparisons to Lily's character would subside slightly. Slightly there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I knew they yeah. subsided eventually. I didn't yeah, know yeah, if they immediately yeah. subsided. Yeah. No, not, no, I... <laughs> yeah, no. Right. Uh, um, but I, here's I, another set of comparisons that I want to ask you about. A brilliant guy who never really had a close relationship with his father involved with a lot of beautiful women, worked much less as he got older, or at least was less visibly working as he got older, causing some people to question whether or not he still had the right stuff. I'm describing the Howard Hughes that you depict in this movie, but to some extent, could I not also be describing Warren Beatty? And is the phone call, which without getting descriptive, but there's a phone call that takes place in this movie, which to me felt like the only reason it would have happened was because... He's saying, hey, look, I've still got it. You know, for those naysayers or, or doubters, just because I haven't been visible for a little while, I've still got it. Is this movie, Rules Don't Apply, somewhat akin to that phone call? Oh, oh, you're talking about the book. I think those of us who have become famous mm -hmm. in Hollywood, particularly those of us who did not get married and who were reasonably interesting in some way, have had stories and books, etc., written about them in an attempt to sell books. Mm -hmm. I've had between, I think, 11, 12 to 15 books written about yeah. me. I have never read any of them. Yeah. I've read about 10 pages or 15 pages of each of them, and I see, oh, well, this is... I've never cooperated with any right. of those writers. And I look and I see, well, why would I continue reading? This is just some sort of masochistic exercise, and I don't bother. Now... Give me the other points. Well, that yeah. You spoke so here's about. where I'm here's um, where I'm seeing parallels, and I I may be wrong. I don't. This is not drawing from those books. Don't worry. Way. Don't worry. No, I'll, just so I'll, you, I, uh... very very intelligent person. We yes. can agree on that one. <laughs> uh, considered a very handsome person. We can agree on that one. Never had much of a close relationship with the father figure. Is that, that is not true. That's not true. Okay. Oh, definitely. That's where I had misunderstood. No, one no, thing. no. Okay. No, so no, you no. and your father were close. No, but uh, we were very close. I would say that, or let me ask you if you would agree, was it easier for you to express affection to your mother or to your father? I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, I, I, so that's where, the, that's where that comes from. That, yeah. Okay. I think that sometimes you could say that the easiest way to bring a male to tears is to 
get him into a detailed conversation about his father. What's the movie that makes men cry the most? I think Field of Dreams, I believe. But continuing with the list, involved with a lot of beautiful women, we know about that, worked a little bit less as he got older. We, I can't say what you've been working on over the, the last 15 years, but it was like Howard Hughes less visible as the years went by, right? I don't think there's an analogy there. I think that I've always put my life first. Right. And that's after Splendor in the Grass. Yep. I went a long time. And then I made the movie that you mentioned uh, in London. And yep. then I went a long time. Right. Before I made another one. Yep. I, I, I It's called... So that one you... It's, it's having a life. No, I yeah. get it. I get it. So I don't think that's analogous. You don't go for it. All right. I don't think so. We'll move on. But I, I just wondered don't if Don't move you, on. Keep, uh, keep hitting me on this. No, okay. No. Well, <laughs> yeah. it, so what I was saying was that when you're less visible in the public eye for a period of years, which was the case with Howard Hughes, I wonder, and I, I guess this is a spoiler alert for people who haven't yet seen the movie, but so pause if you haven't, but essentially the phone call in regard to the book, which had questioned what's Howard Hughes' status, is he still, you know, basically in a difference, in one sense. Well, I, I think that in the movie, yeah. as someone who has attacked Howard Hughes in a way that could damage his uh, governmental responsibility, you know, the responsibilities, industrial, etc. No, I've never been through that. I've, I've had people try to write, you know, sexual things and things that just were right. invented out of nothing. But statistics. I, I, I never the... felt... Uh, no, well, that's I, not what, I, what uh, I'm what i just saying. Jeopardized. You I mean, didn't. I, I, don't, I didn't even quite mean it that way. What I meant was that he's making that call in a sense, yes, to protect his business, but isn't it also... To in more general terms, to say I'm still with it, I'm still fine, I'm I'm a hundred percent. Well, I, I think that you would have to uh, acknowledge that he had some psychiatric difficulties. Yes, <laughs> which I hope I don't have. No, but, no, uh, I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's not an exact, and I don't mean yeah. it in any yeah. uh, way that would imply that at all. Yeah. In casting the film, though, is it correct that you were looking for someone who sort of reminded you of yourself in the male? lead part, which you eventually went with Alden Ehrenreich. I mean, he seems to me like somebody who would have fit in at the time you were coming I, I, up. Uh, by the time I had this written, yeah, I never thought of me. Mm -hmm. No, it's a, a character. Now you could say, well, maybe you don't realize it. But in that sense, uh, I, I, I try to have the capacity to identify with the young guy, yeah. the old guy, and the girl. Yeah. I, I, to identify with, yeah, that's my job sure. as an actor, as a writer, as a director. So, And I think it's somewhat inhibiting to say, this is me. Right, right, right. Where did you first find these two young actors who I think are terrific? I met everybody. <laughs> I observed everybody. I've right. seen, and I, I love actors. Mm -hmm. I love I love actors, so it was really enjoyable for me to, when people were willing to meet with me and talk to me, I was flattered. Mm -hmm. And then so to some extent, you might say I had earned that uh, privilege to meet uh, people. And uh, I feel they're two of the most remarkable young, you know, I call them kids, yeah. that I've ever met. And they both have a great comedic sense, and they both have a high level of sensitivity and, mm -hmm. and intelligence mm -hmm. and industriousness. Mm -hmm. In the time since you've, you cast Alden, he's really exploded. He's the, he's the next Han Solo. Right. And, and uh, 
I think both of them yeah. will be producers. Mm -hmm. I think both of them will be directors. Mm -hmm. And I will uh, be trying to get them to hire me. <laughs> Was your sense when you were meeting with all these young actors that you were considering, but particularly the two that you went with, in all honesty, I would imagine they might have seemed a little intimidated. You're uh, somebody that they probably grew up learning their craft from to some extent. What was their vibe in the room when you guys first met? Alden and Lily were both a lot of fun to kick things around with, both of them. Mm -hmm. One other thing that's interesting about just the people who worked on this movie is that it seems to me that virtually every major member of the crew is a real veteran and experienced pro. I mean, we can go through Caleb Deschanel, Albert Walski, Janine Oppenwall, folks that, like yourself, have been doing this for a long time. Is that because you happen to know these folks for a long time or because there's something specifically needed here with this project where you wanted maybe people who remembered that period or something else? How did you end up with an all-star team of veterans? Well, I've known them all yeah, yeah. for a long time, and... And let's face the fact, they, they're all been known as great professionals yeah. for a long time. And I thought it was good that I was doing that period and they would come close to understanding that period. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky to get them. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the best way to, sure. to say it. The vast majority of movies today are based on pre-existing material. Sequels, remakes, adaptations, all of that we've talked about. This is not, which makes it harder to, to some extent, I'm sure, to raise money for an original concept or at least a historically inspired. So in this case, there are, I believe, including you, 16 producers on the project. And I just wonder, they are categorized as producers as opposed to executive producers. Who was the most hands-on as a collaborator? You're obviously a, a, the ultimate one as a producer, but who else were your closest collaborators among well, the producers? Well, you brought up two subjects. The first one, you know, that no pre-existing material. If you go back to Bonnie and Clyde or Shampoo or Reds yeah. or uh, or Bugsy or uh, Bullworth, right. none of this was pre-existing. Right, you don't do that. No. I haven't. Well, I did it once with Heaven Can Wait, oh, yeah. which was Here Comes Mr. Jordan, yeah, yeah. which was pre-existed by a play called Heaven Can Wait. Yes. And I had... A terrific group of people who one would have to say are patrons of the arts. You could say present-day Medicis, if I don't give myself no, too yeah. much credit, but who could not have been more generous with their time and their support. Yeah. And it was unusual. And it is to that way of thinking mm -hmm. that we have to allow for the financing of movies that is somewhere between 2 million and 200 million. Sure. So I think we have a lot of thinking to do about what we would have to call the art form. The last inning of stuff, if I can, is just sort of big picture, just your thoughts. It seems like almost every film you've produced has had at its center a love story. And I wonder... Why might that be? Do you see yourself as sort of a romantic or what, how, what is the reason for that? I don't know how I see myself. I have been accused of being a mommy's boy and I think uh, I would not deny it. Yeah. It is the thing that is most motivating, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I believe. Sure. And, and to that point, in every film that you spearheaded until you 
got married and including that one, I think that you were romantically involved with your leading lady, which there's nothing wrong with that. That's very interesting. And it seems like you have actually said before, quote, I had very little interest in making a movie until I was romantically motivated, close quote. And, you know, so this would have been at one time Natalie Wood with Splendor in the Grass or Julie Christie with the three that we mentioned, Diane Keaton with Reds, Madonna with Dick Tracy, and then, of course, Annette with both Bugsy and Love Affair. And I just wonder, what is it that, is there something about being emotionally involved or driven that inspires you to work? I think what I would say, respectfully, yeah. that you've gone down the wrong track there, that all of these movies are different. Yeah. And while it might look somewhat like you have described it, mm-hmm. it, it just isn't true. All right. Oh, uh, I, don't, I, I apologize. I, 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 no, it, there's no need to apologize. Yeah. I, it's fine. Yeah. I would say that, uh, you know, from the very beginning, uh, it, it has been written that Natalie Wood and I had some sort of romance going on the that movie. That That's just not true. We have had a very respectful friendship mm-hmm. and years later yes we did have a relationship but but uh, not at that time no a couple true or false you were one of the last people to see marilyn monroe live not implying any yeah <laughs> any no, wrong. I, I, I um i i uh, yes like a, a, a party or something i don't want to dwell on that story she was a very beautiful very sensitive very talented vulnerable person mm-hmm Another kind of true or false, I thought this was very interesting. I don't know if I'm, reason I'm asking, I don't know if it's true, but today we all, all Academy members are sort of inundated with screeners, which are very nice because you don't have to leave your house if you don't want to see a movie or whatever. Is it true that that in some way was an idea of yours? I had read that with Camille Claudel, I think at the time, I think you were dating Isabel Johnny and that with that movie, because it's a foreign language subtitled movie, it's particularly challenging to get people to get off their behinds and go see it. And so I have heard that it was an idea. Why not send this to the people instead of expecting them to come out? And it worked because she got nominated. So I don't. But is that your under, is that your recollection as well? Well, she was a good friend of mine yeah. who was gave a great performance in that movie. Sure, of course, um, of course. I might have said it was a good idea. I don't think I can claim credit for no, that. No, no, I mean, I think it's a yeah. great idea. If you could be a actor starting out today as opposed to when you did, would you? Is Do you feel like it's a more... That's uh, a really good question. Thank you. Well, I think maybe I would have made the transition to directing in less time than I did. It's a very good question because to some extent, one can make the argument that movie stardom is not what it was certainly different. Well, I, I don't know if it really exists the way it did as uh, what I would say is a commodity that could be leveraged in the financing of film. Would Warren Beatty, like some of the other people who he started with, like Jane Fonda around the same time and others, ever consider doing television? If there was a great series or something that came along, or, or even anchoring, if it was your idea, would you ever bring an idea to television? I, I don't think... Uh, I, I think it's a mistake to differentiate between the small screen and the big screen. For one reason, the small screen's getting bigger and the big screen's getting right. smaller. Right. And it's a question of whether or not you leave the house. <laughs> and the transition from the big screen to the small screen for whatever movie you do is sooner and sooner. 
my prediction that is that very shortly it will be simultaneous. Right. But it would not be an immediate no if there was somebody or if it made sense to you or if somebody sent you something that you loved that was planned for television, it's not an immediate no, whereas it might have once been. I, I think the real question is, yeah. would I do something that somebody sent me? Right, right. Well, what's the answer because to that? Because I haven't, I haven't, that's not something that I've not often. done very often. So that, what's the answer to that? Uh, the answer to that is, I don't know. Yeah, you'd have to see. Yeah. But it's not a no. What do your kids make of your movies? I don't invade the privacy of my kids. Uh, I don't know. If the subject comes up and they mention a movie of mine or Annette's, right. we talk about it. Otherwise, we don't say, hey, you should see such and such. Right, right. We, we don't do that. And I, I feel it's a burden to have one famous parent, let alone two. So I have utter respect for their privacy. They're sure. very, very smart. And I could go on and on, sure. you know, but I, I don't want to embarrass them. <laughs> and finally... As you approach, I believe, a milestone birthday. Yes, yes I'll be 40 soon. Yes, yes. congratulations. <laughs> what are you, when you look back at, as, as we're doing now, maybe if, even if you don't do it otherwise, we're doing it today, what are you proudest of and what is left on your to-do list? Is there anything specific that you'd really like to do next? So A and B. I don't like to answer questions that cause such a level of reductivity. And since I don't like to, I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but how, okay, so that's the proudest question. But the part B about what you do after now spending many years making rules don't apply, it's going out into the world. I haven't spent many years. I've spent several years. So, okay, several. And while I've been making rules don't apply, there are other ideas that I am percolating. Percolating is a good word. Okay. And I, I guess I'm lucky enough to be saying, since I don't have to, that maybe the emptying nest of these brilliant people who I call my four small <laughs> Eastern European countries <laughs> that I negotiate right. with, right. that maybe I'll be more interested in one thing that has been percolating than another. Right. You know, but yeah, I think it's it's a mistake not to have things percolating. Sure. But also, what percolates are things that one hasn't done, and I know what you're going to say. Well, what? <laughs> well, if you if you insist, that's none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for this and for many many hours yeah. of entertainment. I have enjoyed talking to I you. I really thank enjoyed you. talking to you. I hope it wasn't too painful. <laughs> no, it wasn't painful at all. I I I, uh, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.